What were the antecedents that led to this accusation? Right. So, so that spiral out of control. That was the big question. So, given that this was not an American phenomenon, unfortunately, the big question is is how and why did it happen, and why did it happen when it did? And so, it, it, it seems to me that there are four or five factors that are that are really important. One of them is immigration. So Messina puts itself on the map at the beginning of the 19th century because it becomes the home of a huge Alcoa aluminum smelting plant. And aluminum sets up a plant there because of the, the hydroelectric potential of the St. Lawrence River. But this is a very sparsely populated part of the world. It's still very sparsely populated. And so Alcoa needed workers. And so they literally sent agents to Ellis Island to recruit people off the boat. And I was able in the archives to find a lot of information about the, the, the people, the immigrants who went to work for Alcoa. Very many of them came from places in Europe where there had been ritual murder accusations in the late 19th and early, early 20th century. The other great source, the greatest source actually, of, of workers for Alcoa was Canada, because you're right there on the border and Quebec is five miles away. And a, a huge percentage of uh, foreigners who came to work for Alcoa were from, from Quebec. And when I looked into the situation in Quebec in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, I saw that it was, there was just a huge amount of anti-Semitism, including some really notorious ritual murder accusations against the, the Jewish community, the tiny Jewish community of Quebec City. And then in Montreal in the 1920s, there were a couple of mass circulation newspapers published, newspapers that were explicitly anti-Semitic. That is, their editorial line was about hatred of the Jews. And so my argument then is that the immigrants who came from Central and Eastern Europe and who came from Quebec were primed to believe Jews capable of committing these kinds of acts. And so I think that these groups were, were vectors of the, of the accusation, bringing it from Europe and from Canada where it had existed before the 20th century and into the beginning of the 20th century. But then that still leaves open the question, well, why was this crazy idea plausible to the Christian community of Messina? And there, I, I think there are a couple of other factors. One of them, is the massive revival of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, everybody knows that the Ku Klux Klan was founded during Reconstruction and after Reconstruction was over, it, it subsided. But in the 1920s, that organization was revived, so much so that in 1924, the Klan had 4 million members nationwide. And the Klan in the 1920s was really more anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish than it even was anti-Black. And I think that's partly because there were plenty of other organizations that were devoted to hostility to, to African-Americans. And, and so the main target of the Klan was Catholics 
and then secondarily, Jews. And so the stuff that came out in, in Klan publications, which had millions of readers, horrible anti-Semitic stuff, including the notion that Jews commit acts of ritual murder. Then there's another factor, a, another really big one, and, and that is the influence of Henry Ford. Henry Ford published a newspaper called the Dearborn Independent, whose editorial line was hostility to the Jews. His newspaper, which was widely published throughout the 1920s, is the only explicitly anti-Semitic newspaper published in American history. And every week, it was a weekly paper, on the front page, there was another obnoxious, disgusting editorial about the supposed evils of the Jews. And then finally, the fourth factor, so you've got immigration from Eastern Europe and, and, and Canada, you've got the revival of the Klan, you've got Henry Ford and his anti-Semitic newspaper, and then you have the presidential election of 1928. In that election, you had two candidates, you had Herbert Hoover and you had Al Smith. They represented opposite faces of the United States. Herbert Hoover represented rural Protestant small town America. Al Smith, who was Catholic, the first Catholic to be nominated by a major political party, he represented urban cosmopolitan immigrant United States. There are a lot of similarities between the election of 1928 and the last two elections we've been through in this country. 2016 and, and 2020, the division, the urban-rural division of 1928 was a kind of premonition of the urban-rural divisions that we have nowadays. Now, it, it turns out that Al Smith, who was governor of New York, his two major advisors were Jews. One of them, a, a spectacularly brilliant woman named Bell Moskowitz. And, and so, for the, from the point of view of the Klan and a lot of other people who were prejudiced against Catholics and Jews, Al Smith encompassed both supposedly alien forces, the, the alien force of Catholicism and the alien force of, of, of Judaism. And so this election, which took place exactly at the time of the ritual murder accusation in Messina, that is, the elections then were really short. They started on Labor Day and they ended on the first Tuesday in November. And the little girl, Barbara Griffiths, went missing a couple of weeks after Labor Day. So you were right in the thick of an election in, in which the sort of anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish ugliness that was out there was profound. And so it seems to me that if you add all these things up, immigration, the Klan, Henry Ford, and the election of, of 1928, you create the conditions of possibility for a, an accusation like the one that we saw. You create the con conditions of possibility that this would emerge. How did um, New York politicians, the political leaders uh, in the state, uh, including Al Smith, for example, how do they react the event. You know, today we're so used to politicians catering to different ethnic or religious groups and having meetings and, you know, laying fears and all that. Did, did that play a role in this event? 
Al Smith was phenomenal. He, he and Rabbi Stephen Wise, Rabbi Wise was the president again of the American Jewish Congress, they were close. And so Rabbi Wise got in touch with Al Smith's office and he said, I really hope that you will put out a statement condemning this accusation. And they went back and forth a little bit, and but Al Smith basically agreed to put out under his name something very close to the statement that Rabbi Wise drafted. And in this in that statement, Al Smith, Governor Smith, said that this 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 can't happen. He totally rejects it, and that he was going to punish. The, um, the state police, police officials who were involved in, in propagating this, this myth, he, he was going to have them fired. There were a lot of calls to have the mayor of Messina fired too, and, and Al Smith said he didn't have the authority to do that. But the, Rabbi Wise and, and Louis Marshall asked the, the, um, the mayor of Messina to apologize for this. And at first he refused to do that, and eventually he agreed to issue an apology. And so you had the governor who, who did the right thing right off the bat. And you had the local officials in Messina and upstate New York who had to be cajoled a bit before they did the right thing too. But in fact, you had almost no prominent political leaders who, who, who expressed the idea that it, that it could have been true that, that, that Jews did this sort of thing. So in that sense, it's different from nowadays. How do you view the Messina event from the perspective of today in 2021? Without getting political, you know, we see fractures in American society that concern many people along different fault lines. Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you take this now, that event, to our current time? Yeah, it's a good and not an easy question to answer. So I, I, I think that there are two possibilities. One is that this story has a happy ending. The, the child didn't get killed. And as a result of that, it was clear to everyone that this accusation was completely false and scurrilous. And so public opinion then came down very much on the side of, of the Jews who were victimized by this false, false accusation. And public opinion in general, there were some exceptions, but in general, public opinion came down pretty heavily against the officials in Messina, New York, who leveled this accusation. And so, and as far as anybody knows, there has never again been a blood libel in the United States. So from that point of view, we can have a measure of optimism. On the other side of things, it seems to me that one of the main reasons why you had this accusation at the end of the 1920s is that there were organs of the press that fueled really, really awful anti-Semitic notions. And sadly, nowadays, we have, it's not exactly the press, but we have all kinds of organs of, organs of communication, all kinds of extremists or 
or online, on social media, and all kinds of platforms, and they have the ability to, to, to put out there really awful hostility toward Jews. And, and we saw some of, some of this in the, the, the terrible events of last week in Washington, D.C. And so it's, and it's very hard to prevent people from expressing these extremist ideas. You close down one platform and people go to another platform. The most notorious example of, of that is Achan, which is the, 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 the one that, that uh, a couple of people who per perpetuated really terrible terrorist attacks a couple of years ago. So that got closed down and the people who ran it opened up another bulletin board on the, on the web for, for extremists to publish the, their ideas. And so I think since we know that really extreme forms of anti-Semitism are possible in the United States. We have to be vigilant, especially now, because there are forms of media that are capable of transmitting the worst ideas. What, what, what is the message that you try to convey to young people um, when you teach this topic? It sounds like you, you touched upon it now, but you know, especially to young people who, you know, it's, it's, who might not be that interested in history. You know, yeah. People just aren't interested in history. Um, what do you try to teach them? So I try to teach them that, word, that words matter and <clears throat> what you say can, can, can have a, a really big negative impact. And what you say, if you say the right things, can have a really positive impact too. And so I, I, I ask students to, to, to think about what it means that, 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 that there are people who are capable of, of saying the most ugly things against groups of people in our society, whether they're African-Americans or, or, or Jews or, 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 or gay people or, 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 or whatever it is. And that you have to really think about what the impact of those kinds of statements issued publicly might have in terms of galvanizing larger groups of people against their, their, their fellow citizens. Well, thank you very, very much. This has really been an extremely uh, enlightening and fascinating uh, talk. Again, it's um, Professor Edward Berenson, and it's uh, the accusation, love libel in an American town. Uh, recommend it highly. I guess just go on to Amazon, and you'll find it there just, just as I did. So again, thank you very, very much, Professor uh, Berenson. Appreciate Thanks it. for having me. Take care.